Hello, and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. Have you ever heard yourself saying, There's a part of me that feels one way, and another part of me that feels another? Or have you ever wondered why you might do things that seem counterproductive to what your actual intentions are? Do you have a mindfulness practice and wonder how you can get more out of it? Is it not quite transforming your life the way you thought it would? Or here's another question. When you take a moment to get to the heart of what you want or need, how do you know if it's something healthy or just a way of perpetuating something within you that really ought to be something that you heal and move past? Today's guest is going to help you answer those questions. And if you're inclined to do the healing work, what he offers is a powerful path to get you there. His name is Richard Schwartz, also known as Dick, and he is the founding creator of the evidence-based therapeutic modality called Internal Family Systems, which offers an effective way to address both issues within yourself and issues within a relationship. We'll explain how it all works and how you can use it on your own on today's show. Dick is the author of the book, You Are the One That You've Been Waiting For, Bringing Courageous Love to Intimate Relationships. And we'll use that book to help guide our conversation about how to apply internal family systems to your relationship. By the way, Dick has offered a free signed copy of this book to a lucky listener. So just download the detailed show guide at neilsatin.com slash self, S-E-L-F, or text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions to qualify. If you enjoyed Margaret Paul and Inner Bonding back in episode 14, then you are definitely going to enjoy taking your inner and outer work a step or two further with internal family systems. Dick Schwartz, thank you so much for joining us today on Relationship Alive. Thank you, Neil. It's great to be here, and that's a very kind introduction. My pleasure. And I'd like to take a moment to let you uh, introduce what you do. Um, and I don't expect you to summarize your whole life's work in two minutes, but if you could try, that would be great. No. <laughs> but can you can you give me a sense of... Um, what's at the root of internal family systems and how is it different from how people typically ap approach the work that they need to do on themselves to come to a relationship more fully? Okay. Um, so I just, I'm, a, I'm trained as a family therapist. So I spent most of my early career studying patterns among family members and trying to improve their communication and so on. And then I tried to prove that that worked and did an outcome study in the early 80s with a bunch of bulimic kids and, and their families and found that I could reorganize the families just the way the book said to do it. And still they'd binge and purge, which kind of drew, drove, drove me crazy because I was so focused on proving this worked. And so I started asking what was happening inside of them and they started talking about these, what they called different parts of them. And as I listened, I started to worry because they were talking about these parts as if they had a lot of autonomy. And they could actually talk about how these parts would fight inside themselves. And 
some would take over and make them binge and do things, other things they didn't want to do. And I thought, oh my God, maybe these are, people are sicker than I thought until I started to listen inside myself and turns out I had them too. And some, <laughs> of mine, some of mine were as extreme as my clients around food. And then I got really curious <clears throat> and I started to I started to try to get my clients to control them because that because I thought that's just what they were just what they seemed you know the binge was an out of control impulse and the critic was always there was uh, some kind of internalized parent figure so I would try to get my client to fight with them or ignore them or stand up to them <clears throat> and that was making things worse so finally I got curious. There's a story behind that, but I don't think we have time for it. And instead of getting my clients to fight with them, I just started to get to know them and have my clients get to know them, even the ones that seemed really damaging and uh, dangerous. And so I got to a place of curiosity. My clients, I had my clients get there, there and two apart as they focused inside and asked these questions they would hear about how it was desperately trying to protect them in some way. And it really didn't like what it had to do, and it was stuck often in the past when it was necessary to do this thing. And uh, so as I did that with more and more clients, I got excited. And what, if, what if it were true that all these things we call symptoms and uh, all these patterns that cause such this havoc in people's lives are the product of these parts whose intentions are actually very, very benign or positive, but have been forced into roles by traumas and attachment injuries that they don't like and that they think, but they think are necessary for the survival of the client. And now, you know, what is it, 30 some years later, all that turns out to be true. First of all, we all have them. Different forms of therapy have called them different things. But I just call them parts because that's what my, client, my clients were calling them. And it's the most user-friendly word. But they are like little, little sub-personalities inside of us. And it turns out that there aren't any bad ones. That even the ones that do make us do things we don't want... Uh, are stuck in the past. They're probably they're sometimes protecting other parts that are vulnerable, and don't really realize that we're not in any danger right now. And so, uh, so that's a wonderful thing. Just that to to realize that these parts aren't what they seem, and would love to change if they thought it was safe to let you change. Yeah, and I think it's important to also mention that we're not just talking about like when I might say, oh, there's a part of me that's really angry right now. It's a little bit more rich than that, right? Like these are almost actual people living inside of us, autonomous people. Yeah, yeah. So it isn't like you've got an angry part that's a bundle of anger or a temper. It's if I were to have you, Neil, focus on that, anger inside you and get you to be curious about it. Mindful, you know, is the big the buzzword now. Get you to be mindful toward it and open. 
and you were to just inside ask that focus on that that bundle of anger you might find it in your arms or your chest or something like that and just ask it what it wanted you to know about itself often you would get an answer come to you you wouldn't think of the answer you just i would tell you don't think of the answer just wait and see if something comes and if nothing comes that's okay but often you would get an answer that would surprise you and if you pursued it and asked it what it was afraid would happen if it didn't get so angry suddenly you would often learn about how it's trying to protect you from something from being hurt or maybe it's trying to protect you from the part of you that pleases everybody and and doesn't let you stand up for yourself that it's so angry about and so as we learn about that then we know what to do to try and help it be released from this angry role mm this is where it gets really interesting because it could be as simple as you interacting with that part but it could be that that part is actually protecting something that you call in your book you are the one you've been waiting for and an exile like another part of you that is is hidden away and can't can't see the light of day for some reason exactly yeah so often if i were to ask the angry part what it's afraid would happen if you didn't do its job you would hear some version of i you'd be hurt and if i asked it more about that it would reveal that it's protecting parts of you that have been hurt in relationships in the past and then we negotiate for permission to go to those parts so that it, and and heal them which then will free up this angry part to not have to be so protective so one of the things i learned the hard way early on was first of all we don't go to these very vulnerable hurt parts without permission from the ones that protect them mm because uh if you don't you know if you violate the inner rules of of uh these systems these protectors will punish the client and then secondly uh you can negotiate for permission to go to these part these very vulnerable places and when you do it's possible to actually heal them and we can talk a little more at some point about how that happens yeah yeah so before we go there there are two important things that i think we need to address the first is um well actually the first is how this is all relevant to relationships and right. and the second is the concept of the self and i and i know those are closely related so maybe that that would be a good jumping off point yeah and i'll i'll start with the latter so uh so as i'm working with these clients i'm have trying to have dialogues i'll have my client talk to maybe the angry part or the critic and as i got uh awareness that these parts really weren't what they seemed and actually were were good but into forced into bad roles i was trying to improve the relationship between my client and these parts and as i was doing that inner dialoguing and sometimes there's a what they call an open chair technique we can actually how you could i could watch the dialogue as my client would be one part in one chair another part in another chair 
uh, I would find that as my client was trying to talk to the critic or the angry part, my client would suddenly become angry at it and the, the conversation would break down. And as a family therapist, this seemed familiar because when I would work with families and try to have two members of the family have a dialogue, a third member would interfere and that would make things go south. Mm. So it occurred to me maybe as my client's trying to negotiate with one of these parts, some other part that doesn't like it has jumped in and is interfering. So I began asking clients, could you find the one that just spoke, that just came in, and ask it to just step out, which is what we would do in families. We would ask a father to step out of the conversation with a mother and a daughter, for example. And my clients would say, okay, it did. And I'd say, now how do you feel toward this, the target part, the, the critic? And they would say, you know, I'm just kind of curious about why it's calling me names. And seconds earlier, they hated it. So when, then I said, well, what part of you is that that's, that's so curious and available and open? And they would say, well, you know, that's not really a part. That's more of me. That's who I am, my true self. So I came to call that person the self with a capital S. And it turns out now, again, 30 years later or so, that that's in everybody too. And that's a wonderful discovery because that self, that essence in us, turns out can't be damaged and has all the resources we need to actually heal ourselves. And so once I help clients access that and begin to talk to themselves, to their parts from that place, they begin to know they have, there's a kind of wisdom about how to relate to these parts in a way that allows them first to tell their stories of what happened and how bad it was, and then to actually transform. So this concept of the self is really the centerpiece of this model and how to access it actually surprisingly quickly, even in people who have terrible histories and severe symptoms. Um, and a lot of it just involves uh, helping people convince these protective parts that it's safe to open space inside. And, and this essence just immediately comes forward on its own. So in the, so the self is really like a larger container for all of these parts. That one way to, yeah, one way to think of it, but it's, it's more than a container in the sense that uh, as we release it more and more, it becomes a kind of inner leader or inner good parent or something like that uh, and begins to relate to these parts, not just from curiosity, but there's a, a inborn compassion and clear, we, have, we call it the eight C's of self-leadership. So calm, clarity, compassion, curiosity, creativity, confidence, courage, I don't, can't remember how many I'm up to now, but connectedness. That was eight right there. Okay, good. <laughs> you got them all. I usually don't. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that really brings us to how this impacts people in their relationships. Yeah, right? yeah. 
So when we, we all come out of our families with lots of exiles, you can't, even in a real healthy family, there'll be times when, for whatever reason, your parent gave you the message that you weren't valued. And that is terrifying to some of these very young parts of us. And so that part takes on what I call the burden of worthlessness at that point. And that's a very uh, scary burden to carry for some of these very young parts of us because we all are born with the knowledge that if we're not valued, we're not going to survive. So with that burden of worthlessness comes this, this survival terror, like we may not make it. And with that comes a drive for redemption, to get our parents to change their mind, to say, no, you are valuable. Or, if they won't, or, you know, down the road, someone who seems like our parents, someone, someone who has some of the qualities of one of our parents. And so when we go looking for a mate, we're looking for that redeemer, for that person who will say, no, you are acceptable, no, you are loved, we will protect you, we will take care of you, and who resembles one of our, the parent who, who gave us the message that we weren't valuable. So that sets us up, sets many people up in relationships that aren't going to work because our partner can't do that for us, for one thing. Our partner can't be that redeemer all the time and can't heal these exiles. And so that longing, that need is constantly there. And it makes our partners feel very constrained or you know, smothered because we seem so needy all the time. So um, I, I liked the metaphor that you offer in your book, You Are the One You've Been Waiting For. And just for those of you who are listening, um, this is a book that's completely about how this model applies in relationships and and how to use it to help you in your relationships. So that's I'm going to be referring to that book quite a bit during this conversation. And um, I liked the model that you brought up of the, um, I think you borrowed... Um, a metaphor from Don Miguel Ruiz of the the kitchen, the the magical kitchen. Um, could you explain that for those listeners at home? Yeah, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say I've forgotten it. You forgot it. All right. Well, yeah. allow me that. Yeah, it was please. this. It was this idea that um, imagine that you have this magical kitchen that can provide amazing food and nutritious sustenance for you and for all of your multitudes of children and um and so your your children are always nourished and always well fed and so they don't even have any cravings for junk food or candy or anything that's that they wouldn't want in their bodies because they can get like the perfect combination of taste and nutrition from this magical kitchen and so let's say you have this kitchen and then the what the candy man comes comes to the door and right. says, you know, I will give you all the pizza and candy that you want. All you have to do is take care of my emotions. Right. No one would no one would take the candy man up on that on that deal in those circumstances. I mean, that would just be absurd. But the problem is that um 
you go on to say in this metaphor that if you don't have that kitchen where you are able to adequately nourish and heal and take care of your children, a.k.a. all of these parts that we have within us, then some of those parts get exiled to the basement because they're complaining so loudly that you can't even stand to hear them. So you just kind of shut them away. And then when the Candyman shows up at your door saying, all you have to do is take care of my emotions and I'll give you all the pizza that you want, well, a lot of those kids are going to be pretty excited for the, for the taste of pizza. And you might actually accept that bargain. And if that Candyman is someone like you who doesn't have the magical kitchen, then that's, where, that's how most of us come to relationship, I think, is, is in that position where we think that the other is going to magically solve and complement and, as you said, redeem us. Um, but it's it's a it's a bargain with um, potential disaster because it's not really a sustainable model. And in fact, um, I, one thing that you talk a lot about in your book is the way that um, for most people, their selves are not talking to each other. It's the it's these parts that are interacting with each other, particularly the protectors, and that's when things go awry. Wow, Neil, you really read the book. I, mean, I did. <laughs> you, you did a much, much better job of describing that than I could have. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah, so as you say, most people come to their partner with this sort of dream that they're finally going to get their exiles taken care of by somebody, that they're, they're finally going to get out of this curse of worthlessness. And, and so... When their protector doesn't do that, or t- actually turns out to be like one of their parents and does something similar, then most people go into one of three protector projects where either you begin to criticize your, your partner in the effort to try and get them to, go, to t- return back to being the redeemer they're supposed to be, or you begin to try and change yourself. All your critical efforts go into losing weight or not yelling so much or being better somehow, but with the same intent, which is to get your partner to change back to being who he or she is supposed to be. And when those two don't work, often then kick in the parts that say, okay, we made a mistake. This isn't really the Redeemer. And that redeemer is still out there somewhere. And you start to fantasize about another person and finding the real one. Or if, it's, you know, if you're burned enough, you give up on it being a human being and you start to go to drugs or alcohol or work or you know, some other way to, to keep yourself above water, out of the pain. So most couples come in and... One of them is in one of those protector projects, and the other is in the, another one. And a lot of their interactions uh, are based on which protective project of those three or four they're in. But, but both of them really are focused on getting, taking care of their exiles from somebody in the outside world, and they don't know what else to do with these with this pain and shame and terror that they've got inside of them. 
Yeah. So if I, how would I know that I'm that a, a protector or an exile is is running the show versus myself? Okay. Well, uh, parts tend to have extreme emotions or beliefs about your partner, or they tend to have a big agenda about getting something to change. They, they tend to be acting, these, these are mainly protectors, they tend to be trying to get you away from pain in one form or another. It might be through dissociating from it, it might be through distracting you with some kind of substance. Or, uh, so there's, there's a kind of protective sense about them. And then the exiles beneath them tend to be very desperate and needy and or very shut down and, and uh, kind of given up, as you might find with, with kids. So maybe you've been talking about attachment theory in your series. We have. In fact, um, Stan Tatkin was just on the show and, um, and Sue Johnson will be on soon. Yeah, so this is attachment theory taken inside because rather than having your partner be the good attachment figure, which is what Sue tries to achieve, my work is designed to have what I call yourself become that good attachment figure to these insecurely or avoidantly or whatever uh, parts inside of us to these exiles so that so you become the one you've been waiting for you become the good inner parent to these parts at least the primary one which frees your partner up to be the secondary caretaker and that's a tough sell with most clients because as I said earlier most couples come in focused on getting their partner to be that that good attachment figure. Yeah, and that's something that's been uh, an interesting thing for me to, to ponder in, in the other conversations that we've had on the show um, because there's something in the project of learning how to communicate better with your partner and how to how to empathize with your partner and and even how to understand like, oh, okay, my partner has an insecure attachment style. So if I accommodate that insecure attachment style um, or if we do together in ways that are, that are win-win, so we're not creating um, prisons for each other, um, then all is well. And yet there's something in me that says, well, wait a minute, like, yeah, okay, so... I might learn how to communicate my needs effectively, but what if my needs are a little messed up or out of proportion to what a partner should really be expected to handle or or based on a wounding versus based on wanting to really give love fully and, and receive love fully? Exactly. Uh, that That's very astute. So... I did my dissertation on a communication package and I, I would set it up so the couples would listen and then feedback what they were hearing and 
I, I got to be very good at getting couples to communicate better, which is what that's the focus of most couples therapies. And what I found was that would work in many situations, but as soon as one or the other exiles got hurt, all those rules just went out the window, and they would their protectors would totally do a, a hijack, and they would be off to the races again, no matter how much they really knew not to do that. And many, as you're saying, many of their needs they were communicating were uh, extreme, and so my position is when I'm working with a couple, I'll do some communication work, and we can talk, IFS has a, a, a version of how to help people communicate differently, but at some point or another, I, I'll notice there's a part that's really very extreme in one partner or the other, or both, and I'll say, but why don't we work with that instead of having you talk about it? Why don't we... Then I'll, I'll work with the one partner in this inner way while the other one witnesses if it's safe to do that. And that's a profound thing for both because I'm trying to think of an example. Would you have an example, Neil, in your relationship? <laughs> well, um, I'm sure I have many. <laughs> um, but, you know, actually what's fresh in my mind because, you know, I was I was um, reading your book were, um, it, because this part moved me to tears, was the example of Kevin in your book um, yeah. who was this, like, really powerful, domineering kind of guy and whose wife had had it with him and kicked him out, basically. I'm, I'm obviously just summarizing really quickly here. And... Um, and there's this moment where he's they're living separately and he asks if he can just come home and and that leads to this whole encounter with this baby within him that he's been protecting the baby part right um and so is that enough for you to can you take it from there yeah i mean, i i can't remember it's been a while since I read the book obviously but uh, I can't remember where we found the baby where it was stuck in the past but the the larger point is so a lot of his striving and his controlling at home and his uh, workaholism was related to this baby part of him this infant part of him that was frozen in time in a, in a trauma scene. And so communication can get you somewheres, somewhere with talking about what it's like to be controlled all the time for his wife to say that and him, him to listen to that. But as long as that infant part is in that, that terrible place, it's going to be very hard for his protectors to lighten up at all. And so... If, as I did in the, in the book, I think, uh, I could convince him to actually try and work with that, that, you know, he doesn't start out saying there's this infant in me. He says, well, when I get past the anger and the controlling, I feel this intense uh, 
sense of, uh, um, you know, pain. And if I have him focus on that pain and just stay with that, which is very hard for a guy like him, and a lot of parts will come in to distract or get in our way. And I just have him just stay with it just for a little while without being overwhelmed, and there's a way to keep him from being overwhelmed. Then at some point, he, he starts to see this baby, and, and he starts to see the scene in which it's stuck. And there's something very healing for these exiles to have you, not your partner, not the therapist, but yourself become what I call a compassionate witness to your own trauma history, or your own attachment injury history. And so as he watches what happened to this baby, he starts to cry and uh, feels a great deal of compassion for that infant. And at some point I can, have, I can say to him, I, I would like you to actually, actually enter the scene and be with that infant in the way he needed somebody at the time. And people will, they don't see themselves, they actually just go into the scene. So they see the, the baby and they're holding the baby and, and, uh, and ultimately taking the baby out of the scene to a safe place. At which point, once the baby really trusts that it no longer has to live back there and is going to be taken care of by him, uh, these parts are these exiles are willing to unload the the pain and the shame and the the, the terror of the episodes and and they transform at that point and they become sort of uh, vital ha- happy inner children. At that point, then I can bring in the anger and the controlling part and so on, and they can see. Their services are no longer needed because this, this infant that they didn't know any other way to deal with is no longer uh, a problem. And they can take on totally other roles, totally different roles. So, that, so this is a model of transformation. It's not just a model. It's not a model of accepting the way you are and expecting your partner to accept that. It's saying that we're all hurt, and we all have these extreme protectors that screw up our relationships, and we all need, we all have a responsibility to our partners to do the work that will actually change that so we can have a much better relationship. Yeah, and so can you just take a moment and say, like, so what is, if you've got two people who are doing this work and who, for the most part, are self-directed, what does that kind of relationship look like, self to self? Yeah. So what we're shooting for is a situation where the communication between people is from this place that I call self. People are calling it mindfulness now, but I've been at this for 30 years, and it's similar. It's a very open-hearted place from which to speak to each other. And to be able to speak from that place about very difficult things. So we have the, f- the phrase, speak for rather than from your parts. So if I'm in relationship with you and I'm in therapy with an IFS therapist and I say, you know, Neil, I hate it when you do that. My IFS therapist would stop me and would say, okay, Dick, 
I want you to focus inside and find the part that just said that. And then once you've gotten to know it, and maybe even what it's protecting, then I'll have you come back out and speak for it rather than from it, from this more open-hearted place. And so after some seconds or even minutes, I might say, okay, Neil, uh, when you said that thing, it triggered this angry part of me who in general hates that what he perceives as criticism. But as I stayed with it, I also found this much younger part of me that uh, got so triggered when my father would yell at me. And so I, I would much prefer that you not say something like that the way you said it. And so that's a very different message than I hate it when you do that to me. Yeah, and I can see how hearing something like that, um, well, two things. One is that it runs a much lower risk of triggering your partner's protectors that come up. Like if you say, I hate it when you do that, then suddenly if you had said that to me, my, you know, my protectors are going to come up and say, well, you know, what the hell, you know, like you yeah, can't do anything. You, no. Right. Yeah. You can't hate me, you know? Right. right. Um, and of course they're protecting the parts of me that are, you know, maybe experienced hate or rejection or whatever at some earlier part of my time in my life. Um, so there's that, like that's much less likely to get triggered because now I'm just in a conversation with you about parts of yourself, parts exactly. within you. Exactly. Um, and because then, that, that's yeah, go what ahead. happens with couples. So my protectors get triggered. So I say, I hate it when you do that. And my energy of that protector goes straight to your exiles and they get scared or they feel shamed. And the shaming or scaring of your exiles triggers your protectors who come back at me with that same kind of energy, which goes straight to my exiles, which then makes my... And so you have these protector wars, parts wars across people. It's like an infinity loop. And, and it's very hard to get out of that until you're willing to actually go beneath the protectors and see what it is that they're that they're reacting to. Yeah, and that's the second piece is that it also gives you both as a partner and as the person having that response that that insight into where the healing actually needs to happen. Right. Yeah, so in that way we we uh can say that your protector, I mean your your partner becomes what we call your tormentor, with a hyphen between the tor and the mentor. So by tormenting you, your partner is triggering what you need to heal. And the emotions that are coming up become what we call a trailhead, that if you follow will take you to some key uh, exiled part of you that, that needs to be saved from where it's stuck in the past. So that's a very different frame on what a partnership should be because most of us want our partners to be our soulmates who will never hurt us and are always nice and take care of us. But actually our partners are here to try and bring all this stuff up so we have to face it and deal with it. And if you allow your partner to do that for you, 
you will be transformed in a in a way that's quite amazing that was the reminds me of the phrase that I almost said at the very beginning, but I wanted to save it for the right moment, but it was resilient intimacy. Uh-huh. Yeah. I love that. This yeah, this notion you. that it's that you're actually creating an intimacy that that breathes and that allows you to to dive deep and to come back and celebrate your healings with each other. Yeah. And you know, if if we were partners and and uh, you watched me when I went inside with my therapist and you were watching me find the part that was stuck in the past with my father and help him, that part leave that time and place and also uh, witness how painful it all was, you would have a very different take on why I'm so sensitive to slight criticisms you might give me and you would feel some relief to see that I'm actually working on that bone bruise which is another metaphor we use a lot Uh, and you would also feel a lot of empathy for the part that has been after you you know the, the angry part that protects me so that's a big intervention in a couple's relationship for one partner to watch the other be this vulnerable and see the backstory to where they got to be so reactive. And then for me to come out of that and have you in this compassionate, embracing place relative to my vulnerability makes me feel so much more connected to you. And we become almost like a a team in terms of trying to help each other heal rather than trying to battle with each other. The um, your book, you are the one you've been waiting for, illustrates this with a uh, with several examples with couples who are going through it. And um, by the way, this may be a good time to mention that Dick has offered to give away a free signed copy of his book. You are the one you've been waiting for. So if you're interested in that, please download the show guide, which you can find at neilsatin.com/self, S-E-L-F. Um, or you can text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And that will also qualify you to win the um, signed copy of that book. Um, but the book is also available both on Amazon and you can go to Dick's website, which is selfleadership.org. And there's a store there that has all of all of his books and, and books by other people who are part of the internal family systems world um to help you um in your in your journey so um thank you so much for for offering that dick really appreciate that my pleasure and in the book um there's you were talking about that um what it's like for a partner to experience another partner's healing um and and i can see where it would be great to work with a therapist um who's really trained in this model and i'm wondering what we can what we could give our listeners right now as some because you do detail in the book very well like okay here's here's some ways that you can go through this process around these parts around your protectors and your exiles yourself um so what are what are some questions that someone might be able to start 
um, using to help them identify um, and we touched on this a little bit earlier like oh okay this is a this isn't me this isn't myself this is a protector and then what do I do with that information once I've realized that yeah so the first thing is just to maybe focus on your partner and as you do uh, there's an exercise that I lead where I could have you actually image your partner in a room by him or herself, and you're outside the room looking at looking at that person, and then just notice the parts of you that come up as you're looking at them from outside. And if any of those parts seem extreme, and almost always they're, they're, <laughs> they are, uh, then pick one of those feelings or, or beliefs or emotions and just focus on it inside for a second and notice where you find it in your body or around your body and then notice how you feel toward it and that question is key because we don't want people talking to their parts or asking questions of their parts until they're in this place we call self. So if you feel anything toward the part you found by focusing on your partner that is not one of those C words that's not purely curious, that in, fa in fact doesn't like it, wants to get rid of it, is afraid your partner's going to leave you because of it, or whatever it is, then we ask that those parts give us some space and just relax a bit. And so I would have you do that until you could focus on the part you're working on and say, you know, I'm just kind of interested in it. I just want to get to know it better. And then it's safe to begin to ask questions of this part about why it does what it does. And as I said earlier, most people, just simply by focusing inside and asking those questions, are quite surprised by the answers they get. And then as you learn about, and I suggest that you start with a protective part, what's obviously is a protective part. As you learn what it's protecting, uh, then you have a lot of options. You can talk to your partner about this, that what you learned, and it's often a relief to your partner to hear that. You can uh, work with the part to thank it for its service, to you know appreciate how hard it's worked to try and protect you, and try to remind it, though, that it doesn't always have to jump in in this way. And actually, a lot of these protectors... Neil, if you were to ask a part like that how old it thought you were, I'd say about 70% of the time my client will get a single-digit answer. Wow. Like it's, it thinks you're still nine years old. And just by having you say, no, I'm actually a little bit older than nine, <laughs> uh, and I, I'm not stuck in that same place, and I... I can handle things that I couldn't back then. That updating, that simple updating, actually is very relieving to a lot of these protectors. 
but they still won't be totally change until the vulnerability that they protect has been healed. And that's tough to do for most people on their own, actually. So up to just now, many people can do what I just described. But when it goes to um, entering these inner abysses and caves and basements and you know, these very dark places, the shadow side of us, where these exiles are stored, uh, most of us need somebody to be with us who knows what they're doing. Hmm. So how would someone know whether it was time to get help with the process versus like, okay, I think I'm good doing this on my own. And and you did mention earlier, and this might be a good time to bring up because I liked this... Um, this question of like, as you're encountering these parts, particularly the exiles, like, can I, can we talk without you overwhelming? overwelming. Right. Yeah. yeah th see, that's one of the big dangers of trying to do it on your own because there's such fear of being overwhelmed by these emotions that you swore years ago you would never feel again, you would never return to, and that you spent a lot of your life trying to stay away from that as you start to head toward those places, it gets very scary and there's this tremendous fear of being overwhelmed. <clears throat> but it turns out that if in advance of going to these exiles, you ask them to not overwhelm you, and, and if they agree not to, then they never do, actually. It's quite remarkable. And so, you know, I can, I could encourage people to try that. Uh, but a lot of times protectors don't trust that it's possible when you're by yourself. Mm. And they, ne they need somebody with you to kind of become what I call the hope merchant and let you know that it, it is possible. But if you can do it on your own, uh, you know, more power to you. So in terms of when to know, it's, it's when it gets too scary or when uh, you do start getting overwhelmed or when, uh, you know, there are a variety of common things that happen as people start going to their exiles. Sometimes more extreme parts come out to distract or, or uh, you know, people will say, you know, I've been on, on the wagon for 10 years. Now I'm starting to want to binge again. So what, what's going on? Just because they're starting to go toward their pain rather than avoiding it all the time. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the pitfalls and... Uh, but there are people who can do an awful lot on their own with it without a therapist. So, yeah. And I, th it, it's interesting for me because, um, you know, in my partnership with Chloe, which I have talked a lot about on the show, um, we've gotten to a place with each other and this should be stated right up front that we were not always here, but we've gotten to a place where our container feels pretty safe and secure. And so our relationship has become a vehicle for intentionally diving into some of these places that, that I think you get at with this work. And, and in fact, in reading your book, I was struck like, Ooh, these are some things that we were sort of stumbling into in a, in a in a different way i mean not not it wasn't a true stumble because there are some other trainings that i've had that are 
related loosely to to this work, but I see how much more skillful we could have been with each other. Um, so what is the balance between whether someone's partner could help them, could be that, you know, the, the tether in reality when they're, when they're going deep in, with their parts versus when it's a bad idea? Yeah, so uh, I tend to discourage couples from doing it until they've reached the point you guys describe where it is very safe uh, because, you know, for a variety of reasons, um, if, you, if, if, you, if it wasn't safe, if, say, you still had protectors lurking around that could be triggered easily and could do something very mean, then as your partner is very vulnerable with you in, in a session you guys might be having together, and you're the one helping them, and their exiles feel like, oh my God, finally, it's safe to come out to this great guy. And then two days later, you're screaming at your partner, and then the exiles get feel more betrayed and hurt than ever. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I feel also compelled to say that this in in the case of my relationship could just as easily be Chloe facilitating something for me. So I, I have I've had my own demons <laughs> that that I've had to uh to interact with and, and and we all do. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I'm still working on mine and this is thirty some years later. So there's no end? Uh I think there's an end. You know, I think <laughs> I've gotten there with some couples, but it's not <laughs> It's, it, a lot just depends on how many what we call burdens you picked up in your life. So burdens are these extreme beliefs and emotions that come into us from our experiences as children often, but even later in life, and attach to these parts and drive their extremes. And so unburdening, releasing these emotions and beliefs is equivalent to healing in this model. And so some of us accumula accumulated a lot of them, like me, and some not so bad. So a lot just depends on how much you've got to heal. What is that process of unburdening? What does that look like? So I described earlier where we would go into a scene. Uh, I would have a client go into a scene in their past and take the child often out of the scene to a safe place. And once these exiles are safe and they trust that what I call the self is going to be taking care of them in the future, then if you ask, are you ready now to unload the beliefs and emotions you got from that trauma, most of these parts will say yes. And there's a, a process by which we would say, okay, ask the part where it carries all that in its body or on its body, and these parts amazingly can always tell what, what it is and where they carry it. And then we'll just ask what it wants to give it up to and offer a menu. It's sort of the elements, light, water, fire, wind, earth, anything else. And the part will pick something to give this stuff away to, and so I will, then I'll say, okay, have the light shine on it and just tell it to send all that out of its body into the light. And I know this all sounds hokey, maybe, and new agey, but it, it absolutely works. And once that's out of the part's body, the exiles usually will spontaneously transform and start, the 
part will feel much lighter and want to play and just be a kind of happy kid. So, so that's the unburdening process that's actually the healing, transformation. Right, because those parts, those exiles that have been shut away, those also are the parts of us that contain great joy, exuberance, vitality, curiosity, um, right? Exactly, yeah, that's the tragic mistake that we all make, that we have these delightful inner child parts, and as soon as they get hurt or shamed or terrified, they now carry these burdens from those experiences. And so now they don't seem so joyful. They seem just like a bundle of pain to us or fear or, t- or shame. And so then we, we lock them away and try to throw away the key with like, don't look back, just move on. It's the American way. And in the process of doing that, we're cutting off from, most, from our most valuable resources and qualities and, and uh, you know, talents. And so this process is a, is a way of reintegrating, of bringing all that back into play and having access to it again and, and bringing that to your relationships where it was not in your relationship before. So a self-led relationship involves that kind of communication that's so nourishing when you're speaking open-heartedly to each other about vulnerable things, but it also involves bringing back all the exiled parts that carry delight and, and uh, playfulness and spontaneity and creativity. and So all that starts streaming back into your relationship. Yeah, and then it's it seems like your relationship is coming from a much more vital place at that point. Right, exactly. Yeah, so there's a place for for your pain and your healing, and then there's a a place for that creativity and and joy and celebrating and sexuality and you know all the things that that do we do get locked away because of what happens to us. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you brought that up too. Um, before we go, I, I just. What, so I'm listening to this at, in my car at home and thinking, this sounds amazing. I want to dive right in. Um, does it matter if my partner is doing it too or not? You can do it without your partner doing it. And many people do. It, it's better. It's easier. It's faster if your partner is willing also. Um, but no, you can do a lot on your own. There's a, a bit, if your partner isn't willing, sometimes that'll screw up the relationship because you wind up changing a great deal and all the contracts you made originally in the relationship start to change. You don't need the same things from your partner and you're not afraid of the same things. And if your partner can't adjust to those changes, then it can throw the relationship into a crisis. Hmm. So that would be my only caveat about doing it by yourself. Right, because you were my redeemer, and and now I don't need you to do that anymore. Right, and if you're going to stay in this parental part that I was that I was attracted to originally, that's not that doesn't get me off anymore. And I I'm looking for somebody who's much more self-led. And if you can't do that, then I'm I'm not that interested. 
And at the same time, it seems like if you're doing this work and becoming more self-led, your partner's going to notice. Like, that's going to, in many ways, probably make you much more attractive. And they might start to wonder, like, what's what's going on here? Exactly. And and you know, it can still very much improve your relationship because your partner senses the receding of your protectors and the safety now. And so your partner spontaneously can drop their weapons and be more in self with you. So it can go the other way too. Um, I just felt the compulsion to mention the possible caveat. Yeah. And it's so interesting too that, like where does that shift typically happen when you're delighting in being someone's redeemer to suddenly resenting it? What say the question again? So where, like, it it seems like so when most people come together and they're in that honeymoon phase and the the biochemical cocktail is floating through their bloodstream and they're delighting in the presence of their redeemer. Uh huh. When does in your in your mind when does that shift to like when it's actually not so great to be a person's redeemer anymore? Because I heard you say just a moment ago that as soon as I start becoming more self-led, that those parts in my partner that might have been excited initially about being a redeemer, that they'll actually start to relax and and maybe offer more of themselves. Yeah. So the question is, when, what, how, how does it, how do you get to the point where yeah, you well, the redemption? Well, it's more like, um, why does being a redeemer lose its magic? Uh, for the the person who needed the Redeemer originally. Uh. So, yeah, it, it loses its magic when the part that needed it and is stuck in these dreadful places gets healed. And no longer do you need it anymore. No longer are you willing to put up with all the other stuff that comes with being with this person. Just, you know, a lot of abusive relationships are based on that dynamic where I will put up with most anything to to get these little hits of of protection or caring or love uh, because this part of me needs that so much and you fit the profile of the person who's supposed to be giving it to me so that becomes very very addictive then after I heal that after I help somebody heal that they don't they don't need that anymore, and all the other stuff they were putting up with starts to become bold relief in the relationship. Yeah, and I liked how in your book you you brought up John Gottman's work, and we've had John on the show. In fact, that was our very first episode, and um, and talk about how a lot of what he identifies those are like in terms of um, patterns that are destructive to a relationship. Um, those are protectors running wild in your, in your interactions with your partner. Yeah. Um, I think he ca- calls them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Right. And so each of them is a different kind of protector. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the irony being that if you, if you work on accommodating the protectors and never heal what the protector is protecting, Exactly. Then yes. you're you're stuck in that. Yeah. I mean you can you can improve things to a degree, 
but these protectors will still be kind of around and on guard. You're just working really hard, and it's a lot of effort to keep them at bay. So what we're shooting for is to actually uh, un remove the need for their services and help them transform so that you're not having to work so hard to not be contemptuous to your partner. You just don't ever feel it. Right, right. Because when you are self-led, all those parts in you that may have been running the show, and and I think we can all relate to that, to feeling like we've been hijacked by something at some point and, and been like, well, I wasn't thinking from my head or, you know, I was thinking from somewhere else. Those are examples of times when you just get run by a part um, that once you, once yourself is in charge and actually caring for all of those parts of you, then that frees up so much energy for you in your partnership to, um, to just be together. Right. It's both that and there's no substitute for healing your exiles because as long as your system is so vulnerable, as long as there are these very raw parts of you in there, these, these bone bruises that your partner can poke inadvertently, um, it's even when you're more, you know yourself more and you're more self-led, your protectors will react automatically. It's just like they can't stop themselves. So it's a combination of becoming more self-led and more self-aware, but then also doing this healing, which uh, is why mindfulness isn't enough by itself. Yeah, it's, it's what you do with the mindfulness. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Well, Dick Schwartz, thank you so much for being on our show today and for offering such a, an amazing and different way of seeing what's going on and for offering uh, a way of actually healing it and getting getting to what is beneath all of all of the pain and all of the protection to that joy and delight that that's possible for us just as people and in our relationships you're welcome neil you're a great interviewer not only do you read the material but you ask great questions so you got a lot of stuff out of me in a short time Thank you so much. And just for um, for our listeners, what are what are the best ways for them to find out more about you? And you do workshops as well, right? So, so what what are some of the offerings that you have? Yeah. So uh, our website is selfleadership.org, and uh, on it, many of the offerings are trainings for therapists. But um, I do workshops for the public. I also do a couples workshop once a year and uh and also non-therapists are are uh welcome to take our trainings that are mostly done by therapists so so everything is is um possible and we have a lot of other materials that can be useful so great well selfleadership.org and just a reminder that um, Dick Schwartz's book, You Are the One You've Been Waiting For, is available on his website and also on Amazon. And if you would like to qualify to potentially win a signed copy of the book, just download the show guide at neilsatin.com self. 
or text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions and that will qualify you. Thanks again, Dick, for coming on the show today. Thank you, Neil. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.